If you want to support It's Good to Know in the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. There is so much we can do. In the first episode of Ideas That Changed the World, we feature a talk Rabbi Manis gave in 1992 about the Jewish response to harassment. It's still as relevant now as ever. We're here talking about uh, harassment, a serious, painful, embarrassing problem that our society is dealing with. Of course, it's not necessarily our problem, but it's going on out there. And... uh, It's on our minds, and it must rub off in some way on our families and in our social life, not only in our professional life. Before we get on to this very distasteful subject, there's a story about a man who came to a rabbi in a shtetl, and he said, Rebbe, you must help me. got a terrible problem with my son. He said in Yiddish, he said, my, my son is mishugi givarn. He eats chazer. He dances with women. What am I going to do? So the rabbi said, sit down. We have to get a few things straight. First of all, he says, your son is not mishugi. If he danced with the chazer, and he ate women, that would be Mishugin. But dancing with women and eating Chazer, this you're not allowed. There's a big difference between Mishugin and sin. Unfortunately, we tend to forget that, and particularly the influence of Christian thinking Because in Christianity, if it's a sin, it's not so bad. But if it's mishugah, then it's really wrong. So if it's an abomination, then you don't do it. If it's just a sin, you can get forgiveness. It can be taken care of. So we need to know the difference between that which is prohibited and that which is mishugah. In fact, if it's prohibited, then it can't be mishugah. Because God does not prohibit insanity. For a simple reason, a person who's insane is not responsible. So you don't give commandments to a Mishuyana. You give commandments to people who are capable of observing the commandment. So if God says, thou shalt not, say, um, eat worms, it's not addressed to Mishuyana. It's dressed to people who found logical, justifiable, sane reason to eat worms. It's not unheard of. So when we talk about the nature of sexual harassment, 
we need to distinguish between mishugana behavior and prohibited behavior. Now, there is some correlation. If you take a prohibition too far, then it does become an insanity, a distortion, a, a disturbance. But then that's true of everything. Even if you take a mitzvah too far, you can become a sugar. So the extremes of anything will, of course, be an insanity or a form of insanity. But that's not the problem that we should discuss ever. So when we read an article in the paper that says uh, some study has discovered that 12% of all people between the ages of such and such and such have uh, schizophrenia, that's totally irrelevant to the average reader. We are not doctors, we're not psychiatrists, it's not our problem how many people have indigestion and how many people have ingrown toenails. If it's going to be our problem, if it's going to be something we're going to discuss or talk about, it has to be something that is not a clinical issue, not a mental health issue, but a moral issue. Or should we say a menschlichkeit issue. So if we're going to talk about anti-Semitism, for example, which we're not going to talk about, but if we were to discuss anti-Semitism, we don't talk about the disturbed, the... Um, the pathological hater, who if he didn't have Jews to hate, would find someone else to hate. We don't discuss these kinds of people. You shoot them, you arrest them, whatever you want to do with them is fine, because there's nothing to discuss. If we are going to discuss anti-Semitism, then we should be discussing the discomfort or the questions or the, or the mystery that the Jew presents to the intelligent, well-intentioned, moral non-Jew. That kind of anti-Semitism we can deal with, we can negotiate, we can explain, learning will help, education will make a difference. To the pathological criminal, there's nothing to say and there's nothing to discuss. And the same is true with harassment. If we're talking about mishigoyim, ogres, disturbed people, what's to, what's, it's not a topic for conversation. You know, we don't sit around a dinner table talking about diseases. If they're sick and they're disturbed, so there are policemen and there are uh, organizations that uh, take care of these things. If we're going to discuss harassment, we're going to discuss it because it is not mishugya. It's not mishugya. It's what normal people do when, they, when they're not finely tuned to what is right and wrong. So let's take a look for a moment. What is harassment. What is harassment? The problem with harassment is that the courts have no means by which to define what constitutes harassment. A man and a woman are working in an office and uh, they're having a coffee break. So they go over to the coffee machine. He puts his arm around her and says, so how's it going? She says, you want to get arrested? <laughs> he says, lighten up. This is a friendly office. We want to keep a friendly atmosphere in the workplace. I'm just being friendly. She says, get your hands off my shoulder or I'm calling the police. He says, lady, you got a serious problem. You're overreacting. Lighten up. Um, a woman walks into a man's office. 
private office. They work together in the company. It's after hours and he's working late. She walks into the office and she says, there's nobody else here now. And she closes the door. He says, excuse me, please open the door. <laughs> Leave the door open. She says, what are you afraid of? It's his problem. Now, if any of these go to court, what's a judge supposed to say? Is it harassment? Or is the harassed a little too edgy, a little too uh, uptight? Uh, the imagination is working overtime, you know, in addition to them working overtime. And, uh, and they're imagining things that were not intended, that were not suggested even, and they should uh, see someone for their problem. How is a judge supposed to decide? She says, he's harassing me. He says, I'm friendly. There's a difference. She says, it's harassment. He says, only in your mind. How do you, how do you, how do you decide this kind of thing? Even in more severe forms of harassment, even where the harassment borders on violence, there's, there's a lack of clarity. What exactly is this? I remember listening to the, to the, um, to the Thomas Hill, talk about soap operas, <laughs> to the Thomas Hill soap opera. And, and, and this is such an intense kind of a thing. The whole country was caught up in it and taking sides and who's telling the truth and who's lying. And, and just for a moment, I tried to figure out what sin, what crime are we talking about here? If he did say what he said, he didn't say what he said. But what, what is the crime? What are we discussing here? You look at the Ten Commandments. Where does it fit? Under which category? It says not to covet your neighbor's wife. But what if there's a woman who is single and you covet her? Does the commandment apply? Or does that go under adultery? I don't know. Where does this thing fit? And I think that what's left from, from this Thomas Hill thing, what is the society left with? What is kind of the, uh, the hangover of this, of this whole thing? The hangover is that we are frightened not by harassment. Because, I mean, if you're harassed, you uh, make a complaint. We are frightened not by harassment. We are frightened by the fact that we just saw on public television, day after day, the fact that we don't know what harassment is. And that's frightening. Because we don't know. Just for a moment, let's back up and take a look at morality in general, and then let's see how it applies to, to harassment. Morality in general, in its very, at the very essence of it, is the simple statement that although you are bigger than me, you may not take advantage of that. That's, that's what morality says. I may be weak and have this inability or this disadvantage, but morality dictates that you not take advantage 
of my disadvantage. You may be rich and I am poor, so your word carries more weight than my word. Morality says that the fact that you're rich gives you an advantage. The fact that I'm poor gives me a disadvantage. You are not allowed to take advantage of my disadvantage. There were people who believed that the only way to have a safe society, a moral society, is by making sure that no one is richer than anybody else. Yeah, they tried, they tried to, to create that perfect uh, society. But they forgot that even if everybody has the same amount of money, some people are big and some are small. There are other ways of taking advantage. Some people have power and some people don't. Some people have information and others don't. And that gives the ones who don't a disadvantage. So the ones who have the information will, if they're immoral, take advantage of the ignorant disadvantage. And so even if everybody had exactly the same amount of money, they found ways of keeping the information uh, from the people so that that gave them the power and, and they abused them through that means, through that channel. So God created a world in which people are not equal. In every, in every meeting where two human beings get together, it immediately sets up a situation where one has an advantage over the other or they each have an advantage over the other in different fields. So I may not be as, as big, but I can be faster. I may not be as smart, but I'm richer. I may not be as rich, but I am better connected. I've got my father's bigger than your father, <laughs> that kind. So right away, when two people get together, there is a disadvantage that one may be tempted to take advantage of. So God says, I am creating a world that is out of balance, if you want to call it that. And I'm telling you, do not take advantage of that fact. That's morality. If we had a society, if we had a world where everyone was the same size and everyone had the same wealth and the same intelligence and the same information and the same everything, there would be no crime and there would be no morality either. Morality means that I resist the temptation of taking advantage of your disadvantage. If I don't see a disadvantage in you, I'm not being moral. I'm just uh, not too smart. Human beings try very hard to attain a level of dignity that distinguishes us from the animal. Human beings take great pride in the fact that although in our body we are similar to the animal, physical is physical, we take great pride in the fact that we do not live by the dictates of the body, we live by the dictates of intelligence. We don't eat all the time, even though the body would like to. We only eat when it is time to eat. Who determines the time to eat? Our intelligence. 
Although we are physical beings and we have physical needs, we rise above them when, when the occasion calls for it. A mother may be exhausted, but if her kid is crying, she gets energy from someplace. A man may be weak, but if he sees another man pinned under a truck, he will lift the truck. Not because his body can do it, but because the neshama can do it. We live by our neshama as much as we can, and that is our claim to fame. That's what makes us human. So every human being growing up basically works at shifting the, the center of gravity from his physical existence to his mind, to his soul, to his purpose. So that we don't just live like animals. And we, and we achieve this. We're successful at this to a certain, every, each one to his own degree. Harassment means that I have a weakness. My weakness is that I am a sexual being and my sexuality came to me before I knew what was happening, when I was too young to know what, what it was all about. And so I'm spending my life, basically, trying to, to master this, this nature that I have. I want to be in control of my sexuality. I want to be a mensch. I don't want to be an animal. So I know that if I don't control it, if I don't master it, if I don't, if I don't think my way through it, I will, I will be diminished to an animal. And so each human being has a certain model, a certain um, structure into which he places his sexuality. Depending on what your values are, what your morals are, what your upbringing is, but everybody has it basically under control. That's my disadvantage and my claim to fame in having overcome my own disadvantage. Harassment means when you walk into the room and you close the door and there's no one else there, you are stirring up something within me that I, thank God, had gotten under control. And I don't want to deal with it right now because I'm trying to work. I'm trying to do the books. I'm trying to get out uh, an ad or whatever it is. And you walk in and you, you stir up what I had finally gotten under control. So you're taking advantage of my weakness and you are insulting my intelligence by treating me as if I had no, no intelligence, as if I was living by the dictates of the body. Uh, very simple, teenagers, a teenage boy will say to a girl, oh, come on, don't tell me you don't want to. You enjoy it as much as I do. If we take that to a violent extreme, the rapist says the same thing. You'll enjoy it. Why? Because the body does. The body is a body. It enjoys attention. It, enjoy, it enjoys contact. It enjoys um, any experience that it is given. But the mind says, this is not the experience I want. 
So if somebody comes along and says, what do you mean you don't want? You enjoy it. That's not a contradiction. That's not, a, that's not even a logical statement. Of course I enjoy it, but that's because of the nature of my body. Now I, what I am all about, is a person, not a body. And the I of me, whatever that means, the I in me does not enjoy it. So, oh, come on, how can you not enjoy it? It feels good. It feels good to the body. It does not feel good to the soul. Now, why do you insist on looking at me as a body and ignoring my soul? So when a person says, no, I don't want, I say, okay, of course you want. Everybody wants. That's if we were just bodies. So here, here's, the whole, here's the whole crux of all of morality. If we had no soul, there would be no morality. We would all be animals, and there'd be no problem. Animals don't have psychiatrists, and they don't go to confessions, and they don't have guilt complexes, even though they behave like animals. <laughs> they should be more you know, ridden with guilt than we are, but they're not. Because if you don't have a soul, then, then you're a perfect animal. Perfect. But we have this complication that in addition to the body, we have a soul. Where did this expression, sexual object, come from? Don't treat me like an object. Well, what object are you referring to? A toaster? <laughs> an alarm clock? No, we're talking about the human body. The human body is an object. And if you look at me as a body without a soul, then you're right what you say about me. I'm a sexual being. A, a, a human being is sexual 24 hours a day from the moment he is born to the moment he dies. I think I told this story last year too. There was an old man who was uh, very weak and ill and luckily, there was a woman living next door who came in every morning into his little, little hut that he lived in and, and spoon-fed him some cereal. So the man writes a letter to his son and says, you must come right away. This is terrible. A woman keeps coming into my house. It's not right. So the son comes. He takes a look. And he says to his father, I don't understand what you were panicking about. You're 84 years old. You're, you're sick and you're weak and you can't get out of bed. She's 87. <laughs> she happens to live next door and she comes and feeds you some cereal. What's the problem? Where is the harassment? <laughs> Why do you feel harassed? So he says to his son, he says, I see you don't understand human nature. Don't you know that the animal soul, the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, can suddenly make me well and her young? That's, that's a normal human being. That's a healthy, red-blooded human being. So if it was, if it was just a body, then, then that's what we would be. We would be full-time sexual beings, which is how God created us. That's why there's this, this, it's astonishing how modern-day society for all of its sophistication and for all of its studies and analyses are so off base when it comes to the most simple human things like, you know, the common cold <laughs> or human sexuality. 
In this very modern, sophisticated, liberated time, you actually hear an intelligent person say, you know this guy down the street? He's bisexual. Did you ever hear? He's a bisexual. What is a bisexual? I never studied human uh, sexuality or psychology or biology or any of that stuff. But I don't know when it was that I found out back in the yeshiva that a person is a sexual being and he can express his sexuality in um, as many ways as his imagination will allow. So what does it mean that this guy down the street, he is a bisexual? And what's everybody else? Monosexual? What's a bisexual? There's no such thing. A human being, uh, the average human being, most human beings are uh, trisexual. Don't ask me to explain. <laughs> I blush. <laughs> Quadrosexual. I mean, it just depends on whether you've got a good imagination or a stunted imagination. It's not bisexual, it's sexual. And a human being's sexuality can be expressed in many different ways with many different people and many different occasions. So what does it mean? He's a bisexual. Why? Because he misbehaves two ways? So he gets a title? <laughs> Anyone can do that. So if we were left only to the body, to the nature of, of the animal within us, then we are sexual beings. And then don't ever say you don't enjoy. Of course you enjoy. Doesn't matter when, how late, you're tired, doesn't matter, you enjoy. Because that's the nature of the body. But when we say no, when we say stop that, it's not because the body can't handle it, it's because the soul rejects it. And I am not a body, I'm a person. So harassment means, number one, the callousness that allows you the chutzpah to take advantage of my disadvantage, which is immoral. Secondly, there is the insult added to the injury. You're treating me as if I had no soul. You insist that I probably enjoy it as much as you do. But that's not true because our souls are not on the same level. Our bodies may be. So now the question is, if the body says yes and the soul says no, who do you listen to? What's more important? So there are those people who think that the soul doesn't count. The soul doesn't know what's good. It's what the body says. That's what counts. And therefore, since what I'm suggesting does feel good, you can't say no. You don't mean it when you say no. Because why would you say no to something so enjoyable? Now, if we want to take this harassment thing a step further, it's not just when somebody walks in and gives you that strange grin and closes the door as if they just did something really smart. If you take a, a little boy and you put him into a classroom, kindergarten classroom, and uh, the rest of the class are little girls, that's harassment. That's harassment. 
Nobody will go to jail for that, but it is harassment. Because given that context, the little boy cannot behave naturally. It, it oppresses him. It, it stifles him. It makes him uncomfortable. And therefore, he needs to do something to, to uh, adjust his emotions to fit into that class. Because he's a little boy. Everybody else are little girls. Comes to the high school. You're uh, the leader of the football team. You're the quarterback on the football team. But you're surrounded by cheerleaders. That's harassment. Because if you're a normal teenage boy and you're surrounded by cheerleaders, you can't breathe. <laughs> you can't smile. You, you're afraid to move. You're afraid to make a bad impression. You're afraid you just can't live. It's, it's harassment. It's a terrible harassment, which we don't even recognize. We expect him to put up with it. We expect him to handle it. Can't breathe, so don't breathe. Learn how to live without breathing. But you're going to be in this class, and you're going to be surrounded by this. And that's the other story from, from the book. A group of teenagers wanted to go on a canoeing trip. And I had been studying with them. And they came to me and said, you know, we, uh, we want to make the trip kosher. What should we do? Now, they were talking about the food. <laughs> I said, who's going on this trip? So, well, eight of us, four boys, four girls. I said, and uh, huh, uh, how, how long will you be out there in the woods? <laughs> they said, two weeks. I said, not kosher. They said, what, what do you mean? Four boys, four girls, 16, 17 years old, in the woods for two weeks in a tent. My grandfather would say that that's not kosher. So they were very insulted. They said, Rabbi, we've been doing this for years. We grew up together. We went to school together. We know each other from kindergarten. Nothing ever happens. Nothing ever happens on these trips. In fact, one of the boys says, in fact, last year, one of the sleeping bags got ruined, so we shared a sleeping bag. Nothing happened. So I said, in that case, why are you talking to a rabbi? You should be talking to a psychiatrist. <laughs> Is it not a tragedy when a 17-year-old boy can share a sleeping bag with a 17-year-old girl and nothing happens? Now, obviously, I believe that they shouldn't share that sleeping bag. But I also believe that if they do, something better happen. But he was proud of the fact that nothing happened. Who did this to him? <laughs> Who did this to them? Who did this to an entire generation? Since when is it a virtue? Since when is it a sign of menschlichkeit or, or spirituality or holiness or godliness that men and women can, sleep, can share a sleeping bag and nothing happens? This is not the way God created the world. Something should happen. Because, again, we are sexual beings. 
And this idea that sophistication means that you no longer have normal sexual responses or reactions, this is not sophistication, this is decadence. And this is what Tamar was saying, it drives a society to pornography. Because if the cheerleader can, can share a sleeping bag with you and nothing happens, then when will something happen? If not with a nice girl, then with what? Pornography, something ridiculous, something out of the ordinary. And when that becomes too common, then what? So harassment simply means that we don't understand human sexuality. We think that we can turn it on and turn it off when we want to, and we can't. It's always there, just under the surface. And because we are moral, decent, intelligent, sophisticated, and spiritual human beings, we keep it under the surface. But when you come along and you harass me, what you're basically doing is forcing it to the surface when I'm not prepared, and I don't want it, and I don't like it. So, what, what's the solution? What's the antidote? The antidote is that we understand that being a sexual person, being a sexual being, is not meshuggah. It's not like dancing with hazards. It's something we're not supposed to do. So we behave according to the commandment. Without a commandment, we would, have, we would be lost. When a, when a man comes into a woman's office and closes the door and it, and it creates a privacy, she has the right to say that is harassment, regardless of what your intentions are and regardless of what my intentions are. Because by closing the door, you have created an intimacy that was not invited. And even if in the end I respond to that intimacy, I didn't ask for it. So I may have gotten carried away with it. I have a right to complain later. <laughs> like uh, Anita Hill did 10 years later to come back and say, you know, I didn't want what I eventually got into. You dragged me into it because you used my weaknesses against me. That's a crime. That's a crime. We need to act in society the way we act for ourselves. We don't want things disturbing what we have finally put together. We don't want things upsetting the apple cart that we worked so carefully to organize and to, and to uh, give some structure to. So in our private lives we do that, and in society we ignore that. And that's where the friction comes in. I worked so hard at being a mensch, and you come along and remind me that I still have an animal side. I know that. I don't need you to remind me. Thank you very much. I, I'll, I'll handle it myself. That's harassment. The solution is be sensitive. Be sensitive to another person's feelings. Be sensitive to another person's sensitivity. And be respectful. This is the hard part. Be respectful of the weakness that you see in another person. How can you respect a weakness? If it's a weakness, shouldn't you, uh, 
work at it, strengthen it, fix it, correct it. Not at all. Even between a husband and a wife. If the husband has a weakness, the only time the wife is allowed to discuss that weakness is when the husband brings it up. And then only if he brings it up for discussion. <laughs> because what usually happens between a husband and a wife, the husband comes home and says, hey, do I have a problem? I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I, I'm so stupid. I am so disorganized that I can't get anything together. I keep forgetting where I put things. And she says, well, why don't you... Um, whatever. And he's insulted. He's insulted. He says, I didn't ask you. She says, well, you brought it up. He says, I mentioned it. I didn't ask. I was uh, reflecting on it. I was not inviting comment, <laughs> which is what we usually do when we criticize ourselves. We never invite comment. <laughs> I'm allowed. You're not allowed. There's a story in Gemara about a woman who dragged a man to court, to, to the Jewish court. And she sued him for insulting her in public. She said, we were out in the market, and, and he took my shaitl off. He took my wig off. He, ins he insulted me, embarrassed me in public. So the court looked into it and found him guilty. And he had to pay damages for insult. So now they're walking home after the, the court, the, the case was settled, and she stops to buy some uh, beans on the way home. They walk along a little further, and the bag from the beans splits and spills all over the ground. She whips off her shaitl and starts gathering the beans <laughs> in her shaitl. So he says, uh-uh, come on back to court. Drags her back to court and says, I want my money back. She says, I insulted her when I took her wig off. Here she took it off for beans. <laughs> the court debated and came back with a decision. She's allowed. You're not allowed. So when a person comes home and says, you wouldn't believe how stupid I am, and you say, oh, yes. <laughs> That's, that's harassment. I'm willing to confess my weaknesses. Don't take advantage. Don't kick me when I'm down. So if I talk about my faults and I talk about my weaknesses, you're not necessarily invited to comment, even if we've been married for 40 years. So sensitivity to another person's weaknesses means to respect the other person's weakness. They are entitled to their weakness. And although, yes, they should work at it, yes, they should overcome it, yes, they should uh, see someone <laughs> about their problem, and particularly if the problem is that they don't talk to you, they don't share. So if a wife comes into a marriage counselor, which, by the way, marriage counseling is a prediction. In two years from now, there will be no, no such thing as marriage counseling. Oh, we'll get back to that later. Uh, if, a, if a woman comes to a marriage counselor and says, um, my husband has a very serious problem. He doesn't share. He never shows his emotions. He never... The counselor should say to her, it's none of your business. You married him as he is, love him as he is, and get off his case. That's good marriage counseling. Doesn't make you a lot of money because they'll never come back again <laughs> for the next session. But that's good marriage counseling. Now the same, the husband 
of this same woman comes in and says, you know, my wife is really upset with me because I don't show my emotions. You know what you say to the husband? Why don't you? Grow up. You live with a person, person needs to know what you're thinking. Open up and talk. What's your problem? Say, but you just told my wife to get off my case and that I don't need to talk. Say, that's her business. Your business is to try to do it. Work on it. Open up. Talk. It's the right thing. In other words, his inability to express himself is a weakness. It is a weakness. It's a human failing. I mean, you want to get dramatic about it? It's an emotional paralysis. But the wife has to respect it, not just tolerate it. Every person has a right, a moral right, to their weaknesses. And we have to respect the space that a person creates around themselves to protect themselves from their own weakness. If we don't, we're basically immoral people. So now going back to the original question. What was the crime in the Thomas Hill fiasco? The crime was the essence of immorality the essence of immorality. Even if we can't give it a specific title, it is not this sin and it's not that sin. It's all the sins. It's a total lack of morality. Because morality says, when you see a weakness in someone, don't take advantage. Respect it. Walk carefully around it. Avoid it. Support it. The person has worked so hard to get their fragile life together. Don't disturb it. Don't step on it. Don't enter where you're not invited. That would make us wonderful people. And I think if we think about it, most of our grandparents were that way. They were so careful. All right, not all grandparents. In fact, I don't even think, not grandparents, great-grandparents. The ones we don't remember, they're the ones who have. The ones you never met. They, they, <laughs> the ones we didn't know. They were perfect. They had this sensitivity. They didn't poke each other where they knew it would hurt. And we thought that they were unintelligent, that they were emotionally stifled, that they, uh, that they put up with each other because divorce was not fashionable. No. They saw the faults in each other, and they walked carefully around them. That's a mensch. Now, you're in charge again. If you want to support It's Good to Know in the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. This is the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, changing your life for the better, one idea at a time. Like it, share it, and leave us a review. Tune in next week for more ideas that change the world.